beginning in verse 29 of Mark 14. And Peter said to Jesus, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Verse 37. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Verse 46. And they laid hands on Jesus and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. Verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. And then finally in verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know or understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began saying to the bystanders, Bystanders, this man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he again, he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed, and a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. You may be seated. Let's take a moment to reflect on this passage. I want to ask you if you're familiar with this term... Rubbernecking. You know that term? It's the uh, it's what happens at the scene of the wreck. Uh, an accident has happened, and as a passerby, as a driver, you want to see what's happened at the wreck, but you don't want to stop. But you do want to see, so you slow down enough and then you somehow twist your neck way outside the window and that's called rubbernecking. You try to stretch out your neck to see if you can find out what's happening or what has happened in the lane that you're passing in. What we're doing this morning 
is we're deliberately slowing down to rubberneck. I wonder if you've ever been on the other side of the rubbernecking. You've been the one who's been in a great wreck, and you stand there and people drive by trying to stretch out their necks and to look at you, and we are slowing down to look this morning at truly a spectacular wreck. The only man besides Peter, besides Jesus, to have walked on the water was Peter. The disciple who was given the name the Rock, the the leader of the early church. If we were Catholic, what would we say he is? He's the first pope. We, we, we can't sort of lift up Peter enough in terms of his place in history. But yet every gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I mean, how would you like to have these guys as friends? Every one of them remember the wreck in their gospel. They give you pretty good detail about what happens right here in the life of Peter. Maybe we remember Peter best for his failure, the denial of Jesus. And at least for the past 2,000 years, millions of people have been passing by this passage and they've been rubbernecking. They've been slowing down and they've been looking at this wreck that happens at the end of Mark chapter 14. The record of Peter's wreck is not really just meant for us to come and learn about Peter this morning. It speaks to all the people here who understand that they are a great failure. It it speaks to people who, either with their lives or in their lives, they've made a spectacular mistake. Or maybe spectacular mistakes. I'm not talking about the kind of person who might be here saying, well, you know, nobody's perfect. I'm talking about the person who's acutely aware of their spectacular mistakes. That they understand themselves and they see themselves having made a great wreck of their lives in some form or some fashion. Maybe people who are haunted some way. They live with something in the past that just gnaws at them. They can't seem to let it go. Some great mistake they've made. Maybe a person who's thought, you know, I had plan A going, but but now that that's happened, I don't know what plan I'm on. B or C or Q or R or Z or or maybe I'm just I'm out of the plan. I just got to sort of hang on until the end and hope God forgives me. I think Peter himself wouldn't mind those people slowing down and looking at his spectacular wreck because it's in the wreck that Peter really begins to grasp the hope of Jesus Christ. 
So this morning I want to look in two ways, two angles, Peter's trial and his failure. We're going to look at that to really understand what happened here. And then I want to look at Peter's hope. Peter's trial and failure and then Peter's hope. The first thing that I want you to notice, and we did this in the reading, is how Mark just arranged his material in here. Mark is sort of scattering glimpses of Peter through the chapter in the narrative. He, he does this because he wants the reader to understand that what's happening in Mark 14 is not just one trial. The trial of Jesus is two trials. There are two different trials that are happening in this passage. One involves Jesus and the second one involves Peter. Let's look back at chapter 14, verse 24, and you're going to see Jesus making a covenant. He makes a covenant in his blood. He says this at the, at the Last Supper. Verse 22, take this, my body. And then he took the cup and he gave thanks and he drank. they all drank it. And he said to them, this is the blood of the covenant, my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Jesus stands in the supper room. He promises to save his people, even though he knows it's going to cost him his life. And then Peter, verse 29, he takes a kind of oath. If you look at the verse, you, it's, it's like Peter sort of swears himself in. He, he's going to put himself on trial, and then he's going to swear himself in to say to Jesus, I'm going to keep my end of the covenant. You can count on me, Jesus. I, I'm going to be there. And then he, he points to all of his closest friends... And he's looking at all of his friends and he's looking at Jesus and he says, you see all of these people? Even if these people fall away, you can count on me. Jesus, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with you even if it costs me my life. I'm better than these people that are here at the table probably didn't create a real warm feeling between Peter and his friends at that particular point. What a promise by Peter. I mean, we hear it now after reading, having read these verses. You, you just want to stop him and say, Peter, you, you know, you don't understand quite what you're saying. And I wonder if you've ever made this kind of promise to Jesus. You ever, you ever messed up and you said, Jesus, that's it. I'm not going to do that anymore. And you mean it with all the passion you have. You mean it with all the determination you can sort of muster up. I'm done doing, saying, acting like that. You can count on me to keep my end. And a moment later, an hour later, a day later, it's all come crashing back down. You can't keep your end of the promise. 
In verse 32, the trial begins for Jesus and for Peter. Mark, primarily concentrating now on Jesus, sort of lets the reader know as you go through from Mark 32 to the end of the chapter, how Peter's doing, how Peter's holding up in his trial. And the answer is, not real well. In the Garden of Gethsemane, I think we can all appreciate Peter's boldness. I mean, he is, even though he's not mentioned here, he's mentioned in the other Gospels, he's the one who pulls out the sword. When the, when the soldiers come and the, and the kiss is done, Peter's the first one who takes the sword and chops off the ear of the servant that's with the temple guards. And even though his actions are completely misplaced, I think we can at least appreciate Peter's willingness to sort of stand in the gap to defend Jesus. But after Jesus tells him to put away the sword, something spooks the disciples and in fact everybody there. And it says they all fled away. They all leave the scene. They all leave Jesus standing alone in the garden. And I'm assuming not too long after that moment, Peter began to feel badly. I mean, hey, I was the one in the upper room who said I was going to be there and here we've all run out. And so he picks up the trail somehow of Jesus and the soldiers. They're going back into the city and and Peter is following at some safe distance, hoping maybe he's not going to be recognized. But he wants to try to stay on Jesus's trail. And so when Jesus enters the courtroom, which is the Jewish supreme high court, we've got the high priest, we've got the elders, we've got the chief priest, we've got the scribes, we've got everybody in the situation. And enter the accused, Jesus, Peter, enters his own courtroom. We see in verse 54, he enters into a courtyard. It's got a small fire little campfire people are warming themselves by. There's a few doorkeepers. There are girls. There are servant girls who, as the people come in, they open and close the door. There's a few bystanders that must have taken some uh, interest in what was going on, even though it was at night. And then we've got the, the night shift of the guards. They're standing around in this courtyard, which is the courtroom for Peter. Peter is warming himself by the fire when the cross-examination begins. I want you to notice he's not cross-examined by the high priest. He's not put on trial by a chief priest. He's not put on trial by an elder. A little servant girl. One of the ones that just opens the door and closes it. Maybe a little 12-year-old. She's the first one who steps up and puts Peter in the stand. And I want you to just notice what she says in verse 67. You you are with Jesus. Right? I mean, don't I recognize you somehow? Weren't you with him? Remember back in Mark chapter 3. Jesus goes up to a mountain, he prays all night, he comes back down and he 
gets his 12, he, he chooses his 12 disciples. And the very first thing he tells the 12 disciples, the primary role of a disciple, remember what he says? First thing is so important. I want you to remember this, disciples. You're going to do a lot of things, but this is the most important thing. I'm calling you to be with me. Because if you're not with me, all the other things that you're going to do, you're not going to be able to accomplish. So he looks at his twelve and he says, guys, are you with me? It's the very question that Jesus or Peter gets asked here by this little 12-year-old. Weren't you with Weren't you with Jesus? Peter the rock begins to crumble. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not with him. I don't even know him. And whether it's the light of the fire or the light of the questioning, it heats up around Peter. And he decides to move over into a more shadowy place, a little gateway, hoping to get away from the questioner. (laughs) Poor Peter. We don't know if it's the same girl or a different one. Comes up to him and now she's, she's gotten a crowd of people around, which is putting on the Spotlight. And hey, hey, everyone, look over here in the shadows. He, he's one of them, the little girl says. And the rock crumbles a little bit more. Finally, in the last piece of Peter's denial... Apparently, Peter suffered from an inability to keep his mouth shut. I don't know if anybody knows anybody like that. But, you know, Peter's always sort of sticking his foot in his mouth. I mean, no matter where you go in the Gospels, he just can't, you know, put a zipper on it. He's got to be the first one who, who gets his opinion out there. He just kind of races in there and he's always having to cover up what he says because he's never thinking before he speaks. And, you know, if you and I are looking at Peter, you're saying, Peter, you've already blown it twice. You must have ringing in your head Jesus saying, you're going to deny me three times. Just put a zipper on it. I mean, get away from the situation. But Peter's sort of chatting with the friends around the gateway. He just can't be quiet. And his accent, being from Galilee, gives him away. This holiday season, I I think a lot of times about when I was dating this pretty blonde girl from New Jersey. Pretty enough to marry. But when I was in college, we would, I would visit her. For, she would, she lived in northern New Jersey. And they would have their friends over from northern New Jersey. And I'd be up there. And well, bless their hearts. I reckon it, they were some pretty smart people. Because y'all wouldn't believe they recognized me as a southern boy almost as soon as I opened my mouth. 
I mean, it just didn't take long before they say, well, that's him. I mean, as soon as he begins talking, we can tell he's not one of us. And so Peter begins to talk and they're saying, no, 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 we're down in Judea, we're down in Jerusalem. The people in Galilee, they speak a little different dialect. He's from up there. In verse 70, someone says, you're, you're one of them, aren't you? Now, I want you to look closely at verse 71 because there's something here that I learned. It's very interesting that you don't pick it up here in the English, but you see it in the Greek. Peter's response in the Greek actually reads this way. He began to curse and to swear... I don't know this man. Notice how the ESV translates that. He began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear. In the Greek, an object is not provided. It doesn't say in the Greek, he cursed himself. It just says that he cursed And if you're reading the ESV or you're reading the NIV, they as commentators insert that word, thinking that's what Peter means. But what I discovered in my study this week is that a number of commentators think that that Peter isn't calling down a curse on himself. Or else they would have written that in there. Well, if he's not calling down a curse on himself, who is he calling down a curse on? And most of the scholars that I read this week said he's calling down a curse on Jesus. I'm not with him. He can be damned as far as I'm concerned. Peter, the great rock, the one who said, I will be with you. Says that Jesus, as far as he can is concerned, can be destructed. Luke actually says this at this point. Peter curses Jesus the moment that Jesus exits his courtroom and enters the courtyard. And as soon as the words come out of Peter's mouth, Jesus and Peter's eyes catch hold of each other. Poor Peter. This great determination, the great passion to be with Jesus in just a few hours, the rock turns to dust. He leaves the courtroom shattered. Now, before we move on to Peter's hope, I just want to draw attention to a couple of things that probably are easy to see in the life of Peter, but maybe will be helpful for us to see in our own lives. 
First of all, I want you to see that Peter completely over-exaggerated any sense that he had in himself. I mean, he really thought a lot more of himself than apparently he should have. Remember when Jesus first says, the way that we're going here is through the cross, is through suffering. And who's the first one to speak up and say, (laughs) we're not going that way? Peter. Peter, when they're in the upper room and Jesus says, I tell you the truth, you will all fall away. Peter says, (laughs) you know, maybe them. I'm Peter. Remember? The rock. I'm not going to fall away. Peter, even at this moment, after one denial, after the second denial, one rooster's already crowed. You'd think he'd just say, it's time to get out of here. I'm, I'm crumbling before I completely deny the Savior. I just got to run out into the desert or something. But yet Peter somehow thinks he can stand in the way of temptation and he just comes apart. Second observation I think that it's helpful here is the contrast between Jesus's spiritual disciplines and Peter's. Peter obviously has an over-exaggerated sense of himself, but one of the things that we see in this in the Garden of Gethsemane is how they're practicing the spiritual disciplines, particularly of prayer. Jesus comes to Peter in verse 37. Peter, are you asleep? I mean, I'm just asking for one hour. Can you keep your eyes open? Can you pray for for one hour? And, And he's looking at Peter and he's wanting to say, Peter, right now, this is the hour that's going to determine if you fall or you stand. This hour of prayer determines the next few hours of your life. You've got to have this hour to stand on because you can't stand all by yourself. And Peter and the rest of the disciples just can't stand. They hit the snooze button a few more times. Mark wants us to notice this, I think. Jesus spends his hour praying, and when he faces the sword, when everything's on the line for Jesus, his immediate response is to trust in God and to trust in his word. Jesus, Peter, spends his hour praying, not praying, sleeping. So when Peter faces the sword... When everything's on the line for Peter, he trusts in himself. He he, he trusts in his own instincts. He he feels like, well, well, the best thinking means I should do this right now. And Mark wants us to notice that Peter's very best thinking was completely opposite of what Jesus wanted. You see that? Peter's very finest moment of thinking for himself was completely in the opposite direction than what Jesus wanted for Peter. 
We said this in our study of the spiritual disciplines this summer. The goal of the Christian life is not to try to act like Jesus on the spot. The goal is to try to adopt his entire lifestyle so that when you get on the spot, you really have some place to stand. So before we get to Peter's hope, it's good for us to ask the question of ourselves. Are we... Are we standing in the way of temptation? Are we thinking more of ourselves than we ought to? Saying, oh, that just, you know, that doesn't affect me. I can listen to that. I can look at that. I can do that. And it's really not going to to capture me. Do Do you think too much of yourself? And how are you doing on your exercise of the spiritual disciplines? The the winning or losing in your life is based on what you do in that hour in the morning with your prayer. Or do you just hit the snooze button and, and you just say, God, you know, my best thinking means I ought to be doing that. My best thinking means I ought to say that. My best thinking means I, I should choose this way and not that way. I, I wonder how many times for myself. I wonder how many times for you, I wonder how many times for the church that, that we've just been asleep and God's saying, I just had a completely different direction. But you just depended on your own best thinking. Peter in verse 72 reaches rock bottom. Or my son might say, He'd have to reach up to touch rock bottom. Peter is a shattered man. Peter's boasting is over. Peter's plan A dreams have just gone to plan Z. And it leaves us to ask, where's Peter's hope? And his hope really is born in this place of being shattered Because now he's not hoping in the strength of his own convictions. He's going to have to hope in the strength of Jesus' convictions. You look back at verse 42 or 24, Jesus makes a covenant in his blood. Jesus says to Peter and his disciples, he says to each one of us, I'm making a covenant with you. I'm, I'm telling you. I'm promising you, I'm going to get you all the way back home. I'm making a covenant with you. I'm making a promise with you. I am telling you, I want you to know this. I alone, I'm going to get you all the way back home. My conviction, I am strong enough to keep my end of the covenant. And, and, and this is the whole gospel, so you got to hear this. I'm strong enough to keep my end of the covenant, and I'm strong enough to, I'm strong enough to keep your end of the covenant. Peter, I'm keeping both ends of the agreement. All you have to do is keep your eyes on me. Trust in me to get you all the way home. 
Echoes of Genesis 15, which you can read some other time. God's grace is given not, it's not totally free, it's not just totally free of our performance. God's grace is given in the face of our disappointment. He is giving it freely, but he's giving it knowing we're going to disappoint him. And so in verse 30, Jesus makes this promise. Truly, I say to you. Truly, I say to you. That's one of those amen statements in the Greek. It just says, amen. Peter, I know this in advance. Peter, you can take this to the bank. Peter, you will disown me. But I'm making a covenant. Peter, what what you need to remember in verse 72 is not that you denied me, but I'm never going to deny you. Peter, even when you remember you called for my own destruction, I'm going to call for your life. I'm going to give you life. Peter, I want you to remember it's the strength of my commitment that's going to bring you all the way home. Simon Peter, I know all of your spectacular failures. The ones in the past and the ones in the future. Paul Phillips, I know all of your spectacular failures. The ones in the past that are haunting and the ones in the future. Jim, I know all of your failures, both in the past and the ones in the future. Sue, I know all of your failures, both in the past and in the future. Carl, I know all of your failures. Pat, I know all of your failures, both in the past and in the future. Karen, I know them. I know them all. Keith, I know all of the failures. Nate, I know, I know them. I know the ones you're going to commit in the future. Todd, I know them. Tyler, I know all of your failures. Leon, I know all of your failures. Steve, David, Jenny, Jeff, I know all of your failures. I know that you are going to deny me. I know you will call for my own destruction. I know you will be at the cross shouting, crucify him. But I want you to know the gospel. 
I am strong enough to carry my end of the covenant and I'm strong enough to carry your end of the covenant. Now, Pat, now Rick, now Carl, now Sam, now Jeff, do you trust me? Will you keep your eyes just on me? Will you give up all of your self-righteousness? Will you give up all of you trying to make it to me and understand the gospel is that I've made it completely to you? I've come all the way. Do you get that? And when you get that, you understand the gospel. I know all of your failures. I've come to pay for those. And I'm going to pick you up. And I'm going to bring you all the way home. Even if you're kicking and screaming the whole way. That's the gospel. couple of points in conclusion. If you're a religious person here, and I've been this person, you have this thought, I, I somehow am banking on my performance. I think somehow I can get to heaven because I'm basically a good person. I'm at least a lot better than all these. And so, you know, just kind of when I put my back up against most people, I'm a little higher than most. So I just have this feeling that God's going to, yeah, Paul, you get in. Peter, I think, would want you to slow down and rubberneck and take a long look at the wreck of self-righteousness. Peter tried religion. Peter tried getting to God on his own sincerity. Peter tried to get getting to God on his own promises. And he failed. And he understood the gospel in his shattering moment. That God has actually come to him. That God's love for Paul Phillips, for Peter, for you, is completely based on the promises of Jesus Christ. Not on your production. For those who think of themselves, know themselves to be grand failures, haunted. I'm not on plan A. I blew up plan A a long time ago. And plan B, not long after that, I blew up. And plan C, a few minutes later, I blew up. And maybe you just don't even know if there's a plan out there for you. At another campfire, another meal, Peter and the disciples are gathered back around. And in what must have been a very painful question, Jesus looks at Peter. He says, Peter, do you love me more than these? And Peter just says, Lord, I, I love you. 
I'm not comparing myself anymore to anybody else. I've blown that up. I've blown up my boasting. I, I'm, I'm doing everything I can just to keep my eyes on you. And Jesus asked him that same question how many times? Three times. Peter, do you love me? I mean, because that's all it is. Are you with me? Are, are you keeping your eyes on me? Are you, have you finally got it, Peter? It's all about me. It's not about you. And Jesus says to Peter, just stunningly, Okay, let's get on with plan A. You ready, Peter? Let's get back in the huddle because plan A is coming. You, you won't believe it, Peter. It's, it's like the, the biggest joke in the gospel. I'm actually going to choose you to be the leader. Can you believe it? I mean, I wonder if Peter ever got the question, are you a Christian? He must have just roared with laughter and said, it's the biggest joke. But yes, I am. In fact, I'm like the leading Christian. It's unbelievable. He turned my dust into plan A. And he got me back on the track. And now I'm feeding people real food. I'm not feeding myself to people anymore. I'm not giving them my best thinking. I'm not giving them my personality. I'm not giving them my, my preaching style. I'm giving the gospel. I'm giving them Jesus Christ. And when you sink your teeth into that, then you can follow Jesus Christ. That's plan A. That's plan A for everybody in this room. No matter what kind of mess you've made of your life. And I wonder if you believe it. Is Jesus' grace big enough to cover your failure? Lord, I, I have to admit... I, I honestly don't think so sometimes. So, somehow I have to, to feel guilty and pay for something that you've paid for. That I just maybe have to hold up for the rest of my 40 years and hope you could just forgive me in the end. But I, I can't do anything now. I mean, look what I've done. This is a great message of hope. It's true for Peter. It's true for Paul. It's true for these, your people. It's true because of the cross. Lord, I pray for, for all of us here these next few minutes. Help us to see the reality 
of your grace and your call on our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.